Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is The Stacks Book Club Day. Minda Honey, author of The Heartbreak Years, returns to the show to talk about Tar Baby by Toni Morrison. It is both of our first times reading this classic novel, which dissects race, class, colorism, and privilege through a complicated international love and family story. It pairs Morrison's famously poetic prose with tragedy, comedy, suspense, and biting social commentary, and some of the best scenes in a novel that I have ever read. There are a ton of spoilers on today's episode, so make sure you read the book before you listen. Also, if you're new here, just wanted to let you know that we have dissected a different Toni Morrison novel every single year of the Stacks podcast. So if you have not listened before, we have episodes on The Bluest Eye, Sula, Song of Solomon, Tar Baby, Beloved, and A Mercy. Go back and check those out. Make sure you listen all the way through to the end of today's episode to find out what our November book club pick will be. And a quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of the Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love the show, join the Stacks Pack by going to patreon.com slash the Stacks. If you didn't know, the Stacks is a Black woman created and run independent podcast all about books. I love, love, love that Patreon allows for me to make this show completely independently without the oversight of a network. It means I get to make the show that I love and a show that I can be proud of every single week. It also means that I rely on listeners like you to help me make this show. When you join the Stacks Pack, you get to know that your $5 a month goes to keeping the lights on around here. But that's not all. You also get perks like our monthly virtual book club meetups and bonus episodes. You get to join our active Discord community. You get to help weigh in on decisions around book club, merch, and so much more. So if you like this show, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Oh, another perk you get is a shout out on the show. So shout out to three of our newest members of the stacks pack, Camille Trujillo, Jennifer Welch, and Rachel Lauber. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack community. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Minda Honey about Tar Baby by Toni Morrison. All right, everybody. I'm very excited. We are joined again by Minda Honey, the author of Heartbreak Years. Minda, welcome back. Thank you. This I'm is happy an- to be back. <laughs> I'm so happy. This is the all-important Toni Morrison book club episode. We read Tar Baby 
by Toni Morrison. It's her 1981 novel. Um, People listening, if you have not read the book, there will be spoilers. I am not sorry, but we got to talk about that ending. And we (laughs) got to talk about some dinner party scenes. So we're spilling all the beans. Michael's story is coming out. Okay. We're not waiting (laughs) until chapter six. You're going to learn about Michael today. Um, Minda, we always start here. Just sort of generally, what did you think of Tar Baby? I don't know if I'll ever be able to forgive Tony for like the first 40 pages of this novel. (laughs) Oh, interesting. What about the first 40 pages? I mean, I was just like, why are we sitting? We're we're basically, the first 40 pages are basically an elderly white couple bickering. And then we (laughs) switch to the kitchen and we see an elderly black couple bicker. And it wasn't until we are in Paris with Jadine and she sees the woman in the yellow dress that I was like, oh. Okay, something something interesting is happening, something exciting is going on. And I think the things that I typically love about a Toni Morrison novel, how she really takes us into a community Mm -hmm. and sets us into it. And we are going to experience all of these different characters and the landscape as a character and all those things were working against me when she sat us down into the world of these two couples. Mm-hmm. But there is there is a turn. There is a turn, though. So don't lose hope. <laughs> okay. Okay. So here's what I generally thought. I, the first three quarters of this novel, I fucking loved. As I was reading, I was like, is this my favorite Toni Morrison book? Like, uh, this book is basically a collection of plays, and I love a play. Yes. The scenes. It is like scene after scene. The dialogue, the back and forth. Um, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, shit, especially in the beginning parts. I was like, this is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Like, that's what this book is. It's just Martha and George fighting different Marthas and different Georges fighting about the same stupid shit. And like, <laughs> and like when in the early part where they're talking about Michael, is he going to come? Is he not going to come? I was like, this is literally who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. I have no clue what happened at the end. So that really, the, after they go to Alo or whatever, that's like things fell apart for me. But for the most part, I really, really liked this book. Like, I was See, all you in. and I are reversed because yeah. the last part of the book was the most exciting for me because then we got into typical Tony terrain. Yeah. Whereas I had the same thought. I was like, oh, this is basic. I was like, why didn't she just write this as a play? Yeah. Because it's so much dialogue yeah. back and forth. And yeah. I just had this like, distrust like we're never going to get to meet Michael (laughs) right 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 right. well I knew no Michael was not coming we did Michael there was zero chance we were getting guess who's coming to dinner it's not Not Michael Michael. everyone but Michael actually nobody's coming to dinner son is just showing up in your home but nobody else is coming over um okay when I sent you the list of the remaining Morrison novels we had not done on this show you picked Tar Baby why did you want to read this one Well, you know, I have, I think my copy has to be from like the 80s. Yeah, your copy's gorgeous. And it says across the top, full of sex, violence, myth, wit, and wry wisdom, and the extraordinary sense of place. So I was like, yes, sex and violence. Like that's that's my jam. (laughs) It does have all those things. Um, Okay, I respect that. Okay. You didn't like the prologue? I did like the prologue. Okay. I did like the prologue. Because the prologue I, okay. is very Toni Morrison. Yes. Okay. Like, we'll take, I, I like the prologue. 
the prologue does not count out okay. of the pages okay. that I was okay. like, okay. Okay. what is going on here? Because at the end of the prologue, uh, or the last little sen- few sentences, she says, there he saw the stars and exchanged stares with the moon, but he could see very little of the land, which was just as well because he was gazing at the shore of an island that 300 years ago had struck slaves blind the moment they saw it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, fuck. I underlined that part. Yeah. yeah I mean, that sen- there's so many sentences in this book and I am not a sentence person where I was like, <laughs> she's here. Like, I just feel like this book had a lot of Toni Morrison's signature stuff all wrapped up together. It had like such messy relationships. It had really like rich, scenic development where she would like focus in on the tiniest thing. I mean, literally like bees without stingers or whatever, like those butterflies or whatever. And then it had the soldier ants, the soldier ants. Yes. So many bugs eating their eating the wing muscles. Oh, yeah. After copulating. Yeah. Oh, the star scene. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, I want to start here because you wrote a book about heartbreak and, uh, you know, I have this community called The Sex Pack. There are Patreon people. If you want to join, go to patreon.com slash sex. Um, but someone brought up that they had read Tar Baby and then they immediately read your book and they felt oh. like they saw a lot of parallels. And I'm wondering, okay. if, as you were reading the book, if you felt like you saw parallels. Well, that's interesting because as I was reading the book, I did not necessarily see parallels. But after I finished the book and was sitting with it and thinking about it and trying to think about, you know, what I had to say and what I wanted to bring to this conversation, I did see a pretty major parallel. And here I am flipping through my notes, (laughs) which when we think about this tension between Sun and Jade, um, it's a it's a tension that I've experienced before in relationships when it comes to dating. And it's very frequently that a man wants me to abandon my life and to step into his reality fully. Mm. Um, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm going to elevate you, lift you up and bring you into the glamorous world of Minda Honey, you know, mm. TM. And... <laughs> And they don't want that. They don't want that. They want to be living in Elo, Florida or wherever. And so I was like, yes, like I know this tension. I know this debate. And it comes, Tony articulates it so beautifully on page, my copy, it's like 269, where she says... Each was pulling the other away from the maw of hell, its very ridge top. Each knew the world as it was meant or ought to be. One had a past, the other a future, and each one bore the culture to save the race in his hand. Mm. So, there, yeah, it's just this endless struggle. And I saw a lot of my major question that I was excited to ask you during Mm -hmm. today's conversation is who or what is the tar baby? Okay. Well, we'll, let's fuck it. We usually do this title at the end, but let's just do it. No, no, let's do the title now. Let's do it now. I I just usually (laughs) do it at the end because it's usually not the most interesting part of the book. But in this case, I do think that the idea of a tar baby is probably very interesting in this book. I had the same question for you. Who okay. did you take the tar baby to be and who was your Br'er Rabbit? Okay, I think there Let me are just prob- tell, let me tell people really quickly. So, the title's Tar Baby and for people who aren't familiar, the Tar Baby story. Does she tell the Tar Baby story in the book? Not fully. She, she references she it. She references briefly, it. But she okay. doesn't Yeah, go she into doesn't it. tell. So, for people who don't know, basically 
there's Br'er Rabbit, who is a rabbit and is eating the master's, uh, or the farmer, but this is all right. This whole thing is a metaphor for slavery. So Br'er Rabbit is the slave and the farmer is slave masters. Anyways, um, and Br'er Rabbit is eating the farmer's cabbage or some shit. And the farmer has like a, a baby girl doll made out of tar that will capture Br'er Rabbit. And so Br'er Rabbit is like, goes past the the little, I'm a really good storyteller, <laughs> goes past the little doll baby and is like, the doll baby doesn't say anything back because it's like a little doll baby. And then he gets mad and he hits the tar baby and his paw gets stuck. And then he does it again and his paw gets stuck. And then he gets all his paws and his head stuck on tar baby. Then he convinces the farmer to throw him into the briar patch. Um, and Cause he's like, no, no, don't throw yeah, me into whatever the briar you do, patch. Don't throw I me into the that. briar patch. That would be the worst thing that you could ever do to me. Little does the farmer know the briar patch is where the briar rabbit is from. So mm-hmm. he gets in there, gets free gets one over. That's the story. Run, runs away. Lickety split. That's the story. In this book, to me, I felt that Jadine was the tar baby. She is the sticky thing mm. to me. However, I also think you could read it that Jadine is Br'er Rabbit and that the tar is, is whiteness. Or like wanting to be perceived by whiteness in a certain way. And that she is sort of stuck on that. And the deeper she fights it, the more she becomes it. Like the more she tries to, Mm. the more, the more that blackness tries to pull her away, the more she sticks to it. I don't think that has quite as good of an ending. I think with her as the tar baby, then that means that sun is Br'er Rabbit. And that feels slightly more like obvious, but I do think that there's a world. I think everybody sort of in the story has their own tar baby, like this thing that they're stuck to. Yes, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree that everyone has a tar baby of some sort, but I think like the big daddy tar baby is going to be the past. And Mm. I think for Sun, he's unable to let go of the past. So we have him constantly returning to his past. He goes back to Elo, even though it means potentially losing Jadine and losing his future. The one thing that he glorifies above all else in this book is his original dime, which isn't any, like, it's not even anything that great, but like, this is the thing that he's elevating. He at one point tells Jadine he's going to go back to working on the boats. And she's like, you've been banned. You'll get in trouble. When he goes back to Elo and he goes to his father and his father, there's like, oh, I didn't cash all the checks because I didn't want you to get caught. It's like, you know, he was still looking back, looking back, looking back. And then when he's in New York and he realizes that him and Jadine are not going to work out and she leaves, all of a sudden he can't let her go either. So he like goes back to the island, even though Gideon tries to tell him, do not go back, don't go. Right. He still goes back. So I think that he has this inability to be free because he's like constantly stuck in the past in all of these ways. And I think that ties into the parallels that your reader may have seen between my book and Tar Baby because Jadine above 
anything is going to move forward. Right. Like she doesn't mean she doesn't care if that means being invested in whiteness. Mm-hmm. She doesn't care if it means leaving behind this man who's made it possible for her to enjoy her own body as someone who's used to being consumed as a model. Right. She right. doesn't care if it means abandoning her surrogate parents. Right. She is going to get free. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, I want to read what Toni Morrison said in an interview about the title. This is what she said. In the book I've just completed, Tar Baby, I use that old story because despite its funny, happy ending, it used to frighten me. The story mm. has a tar baby in it, which is used by a white man to catch a rabbit. Tar Baby is also a name like the N-word that white people call black children, black girls, as I recall. Tar seemed to me to be an odd thing to be in a Western story. And I found that there is a tar lady in African mythology. Mm. I started thinking about tar. At one time, a tar pit was a holy place, at least an important place, because tar was used to build things. It came naturally out of the earth. It held together things like Moses's little boat and the pyramids. For me, the tar baby came to mean the black woman who can hold things together. Mm. The story was a point of departure to history and prophecy. That's what I mean by dusting off the myth, looking closely at it to see what it might conceal. Mm, and I think that sort of speaks to your idea of like this moving forward of this black woman who can hold it all together. Like she's going to hold it all together no matter what, despite what, like get her shit done, get in and get out. Oh, I wonder though, after hearing you read from that Toni Morrison interview, if then Nadine is the tar baby because she's the one who's holding everything together at all costs. And mm. she has that conversation with Jade about how she didn't teach her how to be a daughter. Right. You know, whereas her partner, son, is literally, you know, I talked to, I said something about how he can't stop looking into the past Mm -hmm. and he's literally named for what became before him. Mm -hmm. So I wonder then if, yeah, if Ondine, Ondine. Ondine. I was calling her Ondine and then Nanadine or Nanadine. Yeah, I wonder if she's the tar baby then because she's also really sacrificed in order to stay in the straight household and to stay, you know, to keep her marriage together, to provide for Jade um, in all of these different ways. And it's the same thing for the black woman in ELO that Jade does not identify with and wants to get as far away from as possible. And so then there's this just kind of beautiful contradiction in like, is it possible to be free, but to also bring your community with you, which I think is often at the heart of conversations about the black struggle. Quote right. Right. I want to, I'm going to link to that interview in the show notes because Toni Morrison talks a little bit about that as well in the interview. And I don't want to just read the article word for word, but <laughs> <laughs> um, people, you should check it out. Okay. Let's go back to the top of the book and kind of work our way through it. Yes. More or less, but I have some other things. So the book starts with this prologue. Son, who we don't know is son yet, is in a swims to a boat, gets on a boat, then takes the boat goes to uh, Isle de Chevalier, which is the island of the knights, is sort of what that translates to. Um, K N I G H T S is from French. Anyways, uh, and then we lose him. We go to the book. We start with Valerian Street, who is this older white guy. He's like. 70 in his 70s early 70s and he's sort of a uh sort of like a quirky recluse slightly like grumpy old white guy and his wife is the 
beautiful former Mrs. Maine, Ms. Maine, uh, <laughs> Margaret. Significantly younger than Significantly him. younger. Decade She's 22 younger. years. She was 17 when they met. He was 39. A vibe, I guess, for some <laughs> older men. Not so much my vibe. It's more, it's giving a Woody Allen vibe, if you will. Um, yeah. So they are married. They hate each other. They don't sleep in the same room. He is retired on this island uh, off of Dominique, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. she, they're based in Philly. That's where they were. She comes when she wants and leaves when she wants, but she hates it and she hates him. <laughs> they have two uh, domestic workers, Sydney and his wife, Dean. Uh, who are the aunt and uncle and adoptive parents to Jadeen, also known as Jade. Didn't I thought it was really interesting how the whites called her Jade and the blacks called her Jadeen. Yes. I was like, of course, that feels right. They were probably like, oh, Jadeen, that's kind of hard. Can we just call you Jade? <laughs> All right, relax. Um, and it's leading up to Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And the guest of honor at Christmas and the, re- the reason, the raison de terre, for Christmas <laughs> this year is Michael, who is Valerian Street and Margaret Street's son, about 30. He's supposed to be coming. He's got a red trunk. He's promised he's coming. He's promised he his brother he's coming. He probably went to Oberlin. Like yeah. he's... <laughs> no, didn't they say he like went to Cal? He went to Berkeley, I think, right? They're lying. This is an oh. Oberlin guy. <laughs> well, listen, I feel like UC Berkeley is definitely... It's giving. He's giving... He's giving... Um, he's a little socialist Yes, he's he's giving woke white. If you yes. will, he's a woke white. I love white. my Ber- I love my Oberlin folks. Don't get yes. me wrong, I love and I y'all. love my Berkeley folks. Yes, as well. yes, but, but he's giving that vibe. Yeah, it's a type. And in chapter three, I'm kind okay. of skipping a little bit. We start to hear <laughs> the story of Michael. Mm-hmm. The information we get about Michael is that he is likes to tell Jadine she's a traitor to her race. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He's not wrong, apparently. Um, my, one of my first notes I took about Jadine was she. Do you watch The Bachelor? I watched Rachel Lindsay's season. Did you watch Tasha's season? She was the next Black I did Bachelor. Not. OK, Mm-mm. she was the Black Bachelorette who she's half black, half Latina. I can't remember exactly where her family's from. I want to say Mexican, but I'm not positive. Um, and she did not like to be called black. Hmm. She's just Tasha. Um, and and she has that vibe. The like, I don't, I'm I'm African American and Mexican or whatever, you know, not black. And when I got to J Dean, I was like, oh. This bitch is a Tasha because Tasha's also drop dead gorgeous, <laughs> drop dead, just stunning, like, whoo, holy moly. But my first note on Jadeen was Jadeen is Tasha. Um, there's others of that ilk. Madison Keys, the tennis player, the current head coach of the Miami Dolphins, who does not identify as black. He identifies as part of the human race. Mm, um, interesting. And and <laughs> yes, it's less that they don't. It's 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 the it's the trying. Madison Keys said, I'm not black. I'm not white. I'm just Madison. And that to me is a JD. So, so Michael calls that out a little bit, which maybe not his place, but also maybe not wrong. And then we hear this story about how Valerian loves his son so, 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 so much. And his son would have these moments where he would sing this sad song and he would like go and hide. And it's sort of a weird story. And it's sort of given where we are in the book, 
it sort of feels like Valerian's just doing his thing because he loves to host and entertain and like be the center of attention. And he's telling Jadine the story after his wife runs out of the room in hysterics, we're led to believe. Yeah, because she's like, what is she? Early onset dementia happening or something I don't like know that. What it is. She doesn't know how to use yeah. salad tongs. He embarrasses her. She gets right. upset. Right. And she leaves. He tells a sad story about Michael. But we don't really know what's going on. Sometimes he seems sad and then his mom is very loving of him. And then sometimes he'll get distant again. And we don't know. Then all of a sudden, there is a clatter upstairs. We hear a scream from Margaret. She comes downstairs. She can't speak. She's screaming. It is giving you damsel in distress to the max. It's a, this, is a, this dinner scene is a fucking dream of a scene for me. This scene was so good. I loved it. This isn't even the big dinner scene, but this dinner this scene is not the big dinner scene. To me, this scene is even better than the big scene because nothing's really going on. And then all of a sudden the whole book comes to its starting point, which I think yes. it probably, and this is about 70. Well, let's see. It's even more than that. I think it's like 80 pages, 79 pages is when we finally, when Jade and son finally see each other. She's freaking out, but she won't say what's going on. And Valerian's like, talk, woman. And she's like, she's been ah, waiting ah, her whole ah. life to play this role. Yes, this is Margaret. This is it. This is getting the call for the Oscar nominated film <laughs> where you have to lose 100 pounds like this to an actress. This is the dream moment. Sydney goes upstairs with a gun. He brings down son, a dark skinned raggedy, stinky-ass motherfucker who's been in Margaret's closet. This, for many, perhaps Minda, is where the novel <laughs> really starts. True. <laughs> what did you think of Sun's entrance? Uh, it, it was definitely Tony doing what she does best mm -hmm. and making it just impossible mm -hmm. to, to make sense of what's going on. Like, mm -hmm. everything was all of a sudden shook up and you have no choice but to just wait in anticipation for her to move the story forward. Yes. Like, I just didn't know. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And it's also, everything is so off kilter because he is not threatening, right? right. He's not threatening. And in general, finding a strange man in your closet would be horrifying. Mm -hmm. But we also have this race dynamic mm -hmm. at play happening here. So there's... And this, this is something that I felt throughout the novel that Toni Morrison doesn't really give us a comfortable place to land. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no character in this book worth rooting for, okay? Yeah, like, there's no I one said. to root, root for. Yeah. Any portion of you that identifies with any of these characters is immediately a space to be struck with shame. Yeah. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so this scene is really that like ratcheted up to 5,000. Like yeah. you're like, okay, he's not behaving in a threatening way, but it's scary to find a stranger in your house. Mm -hmm. But is it anti-black because he's like this black man and right. now they're calling him a gorilla? Like, right. you know, Swamp how nigger. Am I supposed to oh my God, how yeah. am I supposed to feel about this? And the irony of J. Dean offering up to Margaret to use the N-word when describing son, but yes. then being offended when she calls him a gorilla. Like, yeah. well, I didn't give her permission for that. It's like, yeah. we are splitting hairs here. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe you gave him permission for the other one. So she, she could do anything back that way. Yeah, no, that scene is so good. Okay, I do want to ask you about who you were rooting for throughout the book. Were you rooting for anyone? It's okay, you can be honest. I can go first. Yeah. I was rooting for son. 
I didn't want to admit that, but basically all the way to, until it got, a, it got a little trickier for me towards the back half. But I fucks with Sun. I do. I do. I don't like Jadeen. Right. I don't like Jadeen. She's she's I just don't I don't like her. I Maybe it's pretty anti pretty bias. I just I don't <laughs> like her. I don't I'm not I'm not with her shit. Um, but I was really rooting for Sun. And not for them to be happy together. I was rooting for him to get whatever it was that he wanted or needed. And I think some of that is because he was like down with Yardman and was like, no, his name's Gideon. And was like, these are people. And the fact that he could come into that scene and be and like see it so clearly, I felt like she gave him the ability to see the characters clearly, which as a reader is really helpful. Like it aligns you with him like in a storytelling standpoint. But also for me, I felt like I could see what was happening clearly. So having someone who I was like, oh, good, we get it. Other people don't get it. Made me like him, though, which is probably why the ending was really hard for me, because I didn't see that clearly. And he was not he wasn't seeing clearly either. Um, but what about you? Who were you rooting for? Yeah, I think initially when Sun comes onto the scene, especially because I did enjoy the prologue, I was ready to root for him. He's the one that kind of like comes in, cuts through all the bullshit, tells it like it is, has everybody else kind of on edge, like... But then his like deep misogyny surfaces and it was like, oh no, I can't root for this man either. The, you know... The fact that he would try to take someone like Jadine and remove her from New York and try to get her down in Elo, subject her to the misogyny of like where he's from. Right. The fact that he snatched that camera from her and wanted mm-hmm. to like diminish her in this way. The physical violence within their relationship. I also like, did he sleep with Alma? Like, and like, mm. I think he said he did. Well, he said he slept with someone when he went to town. And then Alma's so heartbroken because he didn't bring her the wig and she lies in the end of the book. I thought he slept with her. That's how I read it. And she's incredibly young. Like, she's young. And so he slept with her. He made these promises to her that Mm -hmm. he didn't deliver on. He's perfectly okay with women being excluded from the conversation and having Mm -hmm. to play these secondary Mm -hmm. roles. He really puffs himself up that he murdered his wife. But that's okay because she was sleeping with a teenage boy or whatever. Listen, you're right. I like the bad guy. I don't know. I'm giving you anti-hero love. I know he's a monster and yet I love him. I can't. I can't love him. But could you root for Jadine? I feel like you, I feel like you could align more with her. I wasn't rooting for anyone. No, nobody. Nobody. See, I- I was rooting for Michael to realize he had a toxic family and not coming home for the holidays. Listen, I also liked Valerian. No, Valerian is like the Monopoly man come to life. I like, like Valerian. I did. I, that's a that's a personal character that I that's a character that I personally love. The like grumpy old man who's like obsessive and weird and totally just like a chaos agent. I love that device. You I loved love him it. even after Tony Morrison drugged drug him and his ilk for the way that they like exploited. Mm-hmm the brown people of the world for sugar made all this money and then come back and buy this. You still loved him. I couldn't love love him. I couldn't. I look, (laughs) I don't want to be him or know him, but I want, I liked scenes he was in. I was happy to read Valerian. Like I was rooting for more Valerian for me personally. I like that kind of character. I like the person who is um, uh, is a real fucking asshole, but also has a heart of gold. Kind of 
You know what I mean? But I like, don't think he's got a heart of gold. Like, well, you know, I think he has a heart of gold, but also in the structures and systems of racism, he is a, a bad guy. But I feel like on the day to day, I don't know. And I also, I also didn't like no, Margaret. And I, but he and turned I, a blind eye to Margaret's abuse of their son. Yes, and no, like he did. you know, Baldwin bad talks guy. about how whiteness wants to preserve its innocence at yes. any cost. Yes. And so we see in Valerian that he was willing to look the other way, even though something was clearly wrong. He knew he something let, was wrong. He let right. this baby have a baby and right. then just kind of abandoned her to it, right. took away her one support system, which was um, on Dean. Like he didn't right. want them to become friends. And then he's just sitting out in this greenhouse, completely yeah. insulating him from the realities around him. When he first appeared in the book, because Tony Morrison always gives really symbolic names. Uh-huh. I looked up Valerian, you know, because I'd heard of Valerian right. root. It's a flower. And it's a flower, and you a take pink it and to white s- one, like the candy. You take, oh, you take it to sleep though, and mm. that's what this man's doing. Like he's sleeping through his life, and so when that alarm clock finally goes off at the end, and Margaret forces him to look at the truth of the matter. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, he's, I don't like him. Like I like him, but yeah. I liked that character. You like, enjoyed that. The, that is, that was probably that my, character. I think of all the characters in the book, Valerian was the one I was the most interested in. Not that I was rooting for him. I guess that's not mm. the right way to put it. Mm. Yeah, but yeah. just that like that story, his story where he shows up in the book were the scenes that I was just the most. Uh, yeah. I also want to say, actually, let's take a quick break and then I'll do this. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back. I want to talk a little bit about the humor in this book. Yes. Because I think Toni Morrison is so fucking funny. And she Hilarious. does not get credit. Like the way that she was writing, especially in the first half of the book, and like the disdain for the streets, and even the disdain for Ondine and Sydney and JD. And, and their like, anti-blackness. The yeah. way that she like looks down her nose at her characters is hilarious because it forms the way she talks about them. Like there were so many parts of the book where I was just like giggling and like, like the way she describes Margaret's eyes blue as a, <laughs> what is it? Blue, B- blue. If it's a boy, blue, if it's a boy, blue eyes. I, there's just something about that phrasing. And she does that with a lot of colors in the book. She has yes. sea green as the sea sky blue as yeah. the sky. Um, and I, I there, I don't think she gets enough credit for being funny, but I think of all the books I've read of hers so far, this one is by far the most comedic. I will definitely give you that. And the funniest scene to me was when everything comes to head and Margaret reveals that she'd abused Michael as a baby. And then the next morning... Dean reveals that she abused Michael oh, yes. as a Undine baby. Oh, yes. Dean reveals it. And then the next morning, Margaret goes into the kitchen and wants to tell Ondine, well, you should have stopped me. You were like 35. And Ondine was like, no, I was like 22. I too yeah. was a child. And she said, you wanted to hate me. You were so obsessed with me. You were thinking of me. And Ondine's like, girl, I was thinking of a paycheck. Okay. Yeah. Like, I just wanted to keep a roof over my head. But just the absurdity of this like white woman thinking that this black woman was so obsessed with her and so mm-hmm. invested in mm-hmm. her in this way mm-hmm. and created this massive drama. And she's like, no, I, this was just a job. I was clocking in. I was clocking out. Yeah. Nobody was thinking about you. And she even, I think Ondine even says that specifically, I wasn't really thinking about you ever. Right. She said, I was thinking <laughs> about the kid more than anything. Yeah. I think that scene, I mean, that scene is pretty, was pretty heartbreaking too. But the oh. part where she was like, I was, what were you doing? You were 30 or 35. I was only 19. And she's like, boo boo. I was 23. Like you're racist and you're an asshole and (laughs) I'm not that old. Like you fucking wish you think I'm your mom. I'm not your mom. I'm your contemporary. That's why we were friends in the beginning. Cause we're the same. Like, fuck you. Yeah. No, I just, that's that scene. That scene was so good. But that again, that's that like disdain of like, I feel like so many authors talk about how they write their characters. Like you have to, I have to find like, love them. I have to find a way to love them. And I don't think that Toni Morrison felt that way about, at least about these people. She also has like kind of almost like a creepy kind of humor too, because when we get, towards the end of the book and Jadine comes back, I think to just get that baby seal coat. Um, She's talking to Margaret and Margaret is so peppy. Now that Val, now that Val, Valeria needs her, I almost called him Valentine, (laughs) needs her to take care of him. And I'm like, dang, is she like 
poking him with the cuticle scissors now. And then mm. you have Sydney in there telling him like, oh, do you want some wine? And he's like, no. And Sydney's like, oh, well, I'm going to have a glass. He's like, Sydney, I told you I don't want any wine. And Sydney's like, yeah, I'm going to have the wine. It's like, right. ooh, the butler's revenge. And we have this kind of like shift mm-hmm. happening that mm-hmm. you're not sure if it's going to be an echo of Margaret and Michael's relationship. But I thought that there was like kind of just like a creepy, like, you know, yeah. Tales from the Crypt kind of like humor happening there. (laughs) Well, I think what's really interesting about this book is like the way she subverts and uses stereotypes and cliches. I mean, every character in this book is an archetypal character, right? Like you have like Mm -hmm. the beautiful wife who's evil. You have the like aloof, rich husband who's like obsessed with his little garden or whatever. You have the beautiful black woman who's also a sex goddess and you know, a model. And then you have the black brute who sneaks around and you have the butler who's so loyal. And then you have the the like mammy character who knows what the fuck is up. Like you have all of these characters, but with every single one, she takes that archetype, she plays with it, she uses mm-hmm, it. And mm-hmm. then she fucking flips that switch so fast. Like the fact that Margaret was the real violent one in all of this when she had a, when Margaret would have us all believe that it was son, you know, she's crying about how scared she is that he's going to hurt her. And he's like, I'm not even interested in you. Uh, a and B you're, a baby beater. Like you've been poking <laughs> yes. your baby and burning your baby. I mean, we didn't even say that. That's the revelation at the dinner scene in chapter six, five, six Pick up sticks. I think it's chapter five. The dinner scene in chapter five is where we learn what has been going on with Michael. And it starts and Gideon, or no, it starts with son bringing up Gideon being like, Oh, it'd be so nice if Gideon was at Christmas dinner too. And I read that as a, as a pot stirring moment, Mm. but maybe it was innocent. I don't know. How did you read that as intentional or innocent? Um, I, no, I don't think I, I, I don't think I thought about it much because we were immediately on to the whole Apple situation. Yes. And because we have this earlier scene where Therese is talking about her Apple obsession and Gideon's mm. trying to bring them back from the States for her. And I'm like, why is she so fixated on apples? But then you have like the whole Garden of Eden thing. And then the right. apples are like the loaded gun by the end of the book. Oh, I didn't even connect the apples to the Garden of Eden. Ah, oh, I'm such an idiot. The knowledge. Yes, yes, of course. So yeah, so so Gideon, so uh, son is like, oh, it'd be great if Gideon was here. And they're like, who's Gideon? And they're like, <laughs> he's like, Yardman, Yardman. That's his name. And they're like, oh, what a beautiful name. And then Valerian's like, I fired them. And then Andine's like, what? And he's like, I don't have to tell you shit. I'm I'm the boss around here. You're welcome that you get to sit at this table. And the whole shit basically spirals out. On Dean essentially is just like, fuck it. Let's burn this shit down. Then yes, <laughs> goes fully at Margaret is like, you're a bitch. Fuck you. And then Margaret's like, oh, my God, I'm a victim. And she's like, you're not a fucking victim. You are a baby killer. I saw you. I've been seeing you. You were poking that boy. You were burning that boy. You like to watch him cry. Mic drop. Yep. She smacks her. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Then they fight. She, they visit, <laughs> and she she hits her. Then she grabs her braids. But she does that before she actually drops the mic, right? She they they have the physical altercation. Then they get pulled apart. And then she's like, "You're a baby killer." Um, holy shit! Now that's a scene as well. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, 
That's the big dinner scene. That is that is the big dinner scene. I preferred the dinner scene in scene three in chapter three, just because I felt like that was like a much craftier scene. But the big, you know, moment of the book. No return. Yes. But okay. Okay. okay, okay. I know what I wanted to ask you. Okay. This book, (laughs) if you like read the copy about this book, it's like, this is Toni Morrison's reinvention of the love story. Blah, blah, blah. What? (laughs) Did they read this book? The marketing (laughs) copy of this book had me believing I was going to read a love story. This is a family drama story to me. And this is also a stranger's, a stranger in our midst story. Okay. Uh, my my description is different. It says Tar Baby is a magnificent novel from one of the most acclaimed authors of our day, Toni Morrison. Never before has she probed so deeply and sensitively into the relationships between blacks and whites, blacks and blacks, women and men. Never before has she achieved such raw emotional intensity and overwhelming narrative drive. In the words of New York Magazine, Toni Morrison has made herself into the D.H. Lawrence of the black psyche, transforming individuals into forces idiosyncrasy into inevitability which i think is a lot more accurate description do you want to hear mine mine is insane (laughs) ravishing beautiful and emotionally incendiary tar baby is nobel prize laureate tony morrison's reinvention of the love story jadine childs is a black fashion model with a white patron a white boyfriend and a coat made out of 90 perfect seal skins son is a black fugitive who embodies everything she loathes and desires as morrison follows their affair which plays out from the caribbean to manhattan and the deep South, she charts all the nuances of obligation and betrayal between blacks and whites, masters and servants, and men and women. That's Which is not wild what I read. because the relationship doesn't even happen until like three fourths of the way to the book. Well, right. They don't see each other till page 79. They don't speak until page 113 of a 300 page <laughs> book. They don't be fucking until damn near the end, the end of chapter six. Yes. Right? That's the star scene. It's it's wild. But anyways, so obviously you didn't have that preconceived notion that this was going to be like a love story. But I definitely did because that's what all the copy says now about the book. I wonder why there's been this shift. I think probably because people are too scared to talk about race. So if you frame it as like her conversation about race and gender, it feels risky. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They don't have sex until page 214. And it's like very metaphorical sex. It's the star. <laughs> it's the throbbing stars. Mm-hmm. We love a throbbing star. Don't we? Gotta catch them all. <laughs> but, then they, but then they kind of have, she doesn't really give you like a full sex scene. She definitely stays away from like a full sex scene. She talks about their sex, but she doesn't give you like a sex moment. Right. I don't even know where I was going with that. But um, well, uh, mm. <laughs> I don't, I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. Oh, I know what I wanted. What I did want to talk about though is the way that she uses the black characters to discuss racism and race in this book, mm-hmm. for the most part, aside from like extremely obvious racist remarks, the streets sort of stay out of the race talk in this book. Right. Yes. She uses Sun, Jadine, Andine, and Sydney, and then a little bit um, Gideon and Therese. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering like what you thought about that. Well, also the Filipinos that never appear on this page Mm. keep catching strays. That's true. I was like, dang, leave my people alone. Oh, yeah. You're in this book. (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. It's like. 
there's such a hierarchy and everyone's trying to defend their place in the hierarchy. And so that's where we see this Mm -hmm. anti-Blackness really seep out of everyone. And even though you spoke earlier about how Jadine's really decided to align herself with whiteness, invest in whiteness, even the women that Sun admires back in Elo, we have this moment when he first sees Alma and that ridiculous red wig Mm -hmm. where he becomes so disenchanted because it's like, it's like, it's not necessarily that there are certain people that are, you know, in this, in the world of this novel that are above aligning themselves with whiteness is that certain people don't have as much leeway to do so. And so he's starting to see that when he sees Alma in that wig. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really liked how she used the characters of Sydney and Nandine. Like when Sun first appears and they're so fucking mad that he said <laughs> hi and that he got to sit at the table and drink the wine or whatever. And Andine's like, don't say shit. And Sydney's like, no, I'm going to say something. She's like, don't, I'm not trying to lose my job over this shit. Don't let Jade do it, basically. (laughs) But they didn't have any kind of feelings about Jade sitting at that table and letting them serve her as if she was above them. Right. I was just like, I would be, I, when I thought about Jade doing that, I was like, I would be so uncomfortable. Did you have a sense like in your mind, are you a reader who like imagines what people look like? Mm, Sometimes it depends. Did you have any like sense, like as far as like what color you thought the characters were? I mean, Jade was definitely like a a Whitley character from um, it's a different world, you know? Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's where I would put her. Um, and then I wasn't really sure skin tone wise where Sydney and Ondine fell. Um, and then obviously the book describes Sun as me being much darker because yeah. he's like, you know, representing this like dark consciousness. And, right. Um, and then I knew that the folks who are working on the island and who are indigenous to the island are also darker. Well, not indigenous. They were probably brought there yes. through the slave trade <laughs> yeah. um, are likely darker skinned as well. Um, so, yeah. In fact, I didn't really necessarily at first picture Jade as being lighter skinned until that moment where she sees the woman in the yellow dress at the grocery Mm. store. And then we get a little bit more information about there's some references to Jade being like a yellow, a yellow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like a, they're basically calling her high yellow. Yeah. And also, um, when he says something, son says something to her and he's like, you're not one of them or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. and she's like, oh, well, she's got a little, or like, he's like, I can tell she's black or something. And then they're like, oh, she got a little tan right now. (laughs) <laughs> she's been on the islands or whatever. Um, but I wonder if that part of it, like of her being so light skinned plays into why they're okay with her sitting at the table. And also because she's their family and they like wanted this for her. Sure. But like they took the time to spend the money to send her to the places and get her a patron or whatever. Yeah. But then you would hope that she would return and still respect you. But yeah, that very first dinner scene where I was like, oh, Jay just up at the table and not even, there was no familiarity. You know, there was, Sydney was serving her as he would any white person he doesn't know. It wasn't like she was like, thanks uncle, or, you know, acknowledging him in any sort of way. He was just the background to her. 
Right. Yeah. And I, I took that as something that Sydney and Undine wanted for her, right? Like that, that that was their hope for her. Because, I mean, clearly they are anti-Black in a lot of ways too. And I feel like that's what's so interesting about the way that, that Toni Morrison uses the Black characters to have those conversations is that she doesn't, like that she can center a conversation about like white supremacy and anti-Blackness in a Black in black voices. She doesn't actually yes. need white people to do that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, I, I think that that's really spot on and it's powerful. I don't think other, I don't think lesser writers could or would even think to do that. Right. Like she always talks about how she writes for black people. Yes. And I feel like that, that the usage of the black characters in that way is shows that really clearly to me. It's like, even though she has white people who could very easily do this work for her, she's like, no, 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 I'm not going to let them, I'm not going to let anybody off the hook by just having the the villain of Margaret do it, you know? And the, that's where her humor comes back in too, yeah. because she had gotten so much criticism from white critics for not writing white characters and writing about white people and what they think and what they're doing. And she's like, okay, sure. I'll give you some white people. Right. (laughs) Right. And then it's still very much a book focused on blackness, about blackness among black people. Right. Well, one of the members of the Stacks Pack mentioned um, she was, she's reading one of Pearl Klieg's essays or articles and talks about how Pearl Klieg is like, oh, Toni Morrison doesn't write for black people anymore since she wrote Tar Baby. But I think like in the moment, if you're a black reader and Toni Morrison has said, I write for black people and her first books leading up to this, which would be Sula, The Bluest Eye and Song of Solomon, all focus exclusively on black people. Mm-hmm. And then you have this book that starts out with these white characters. That 40 feel like pages. Ce- yeah, that feel like the center <laughs> of the book without knowing what's coming next or what she's done. It's interesting to see that that was potentially the criticism in 1981 when this book comes out is like, oh, she sold out maybe, right? Like, mm. and I thought that was really, I haven't read the article, so I'm going I'm to see if I can find the link to it, but I haven't read it. I just, someone brought it to my attention, but I thought that was really interesting because that's what happens like with cultural commentary in the moment. Yeah. You can't see the broader scope and the work, like the arc of the artist. Um, and Toni Morrison probably couldn't see it either at the moment. Like, I wonder how she took, would take that kind of intra-community like criticism, right? I think she would tip her off to the fact that maybe the book wasn't, they didn't finish reading the book. They just stopped at the, that first 40 pages. Right, um, right. Or were so disenchanted by those f- first 40 pages, couldn't see what she was actually doing. But I think she, I think Tony knew, I think she knew what she was, what she was up to. But I also just wanted to go back to Andine and Sydney. Like, I think they elevated Jadine with the hopes that she was going to pull them up. Right. And so that's that heartbreaking scene in the end when, you know, Jadine is saying, don't, don't make me a parent. Like, don't expect, don't expect something from me right now. Right. Well, and I think also when she's like, I didn't teach her how to be a daughter, which is like so, you know, deeply related to gender. I think for me, I, I was hoping she would say, I didn't teach her how to be black. Ooh. Right. Cause like, well, that- I think that's, that's the coding there. Cause you know, like your mother is the cultural bearer of the right. household. And you see on Twitter people saying like, Oh, you could tell that biracial person, like they had a white mother, not a black right. mother. Like right. there's that. Right. Um, which is, you know, yes, I could say a lot about that, but <laughs> <laughs> same, but I won't, I could, but I won't. 
please see the previous episode we did yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good plug. Thank you. Link in the show notes. But um, yeah, so maybe that's what that coded language was happening there. Maybe it was working on multiple levels about what was not passed down. Yeah. I'm going to do a, a sort of a, well, I want to go back really quickly to something we were talking about. Did you feel like with the tropes and the like stereotypes that she has for her characters, the archetypal characters, did you feel like she did enough to subvert them to like make new meaning of those characters? Or do you, or do you feel like this, it was felt stale in any way or, or anything like that? Oh, definitely didn't feel stale. Definitely the sort of book that you're going to continue to be thinking about these characters and mm-hmm. following, falling down rabbit holes. You know, I I noticed that Teresa's last name is Foucault. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, you know, Foucault wrote all about knowledge and power. So next thing you know, I'm tumbling through Foucault's <laughs> Wikipedia page and thinking about all of the different power struggles happening within the relationships of the book. And a lot of the tension between Sun and Jadine because Jadine's been educated, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and in some like it, and educated as symbol symbolic of being embedded into this world of whiteness. Right. And Sun is like refusing that. And Jadine is trying to say, this is where the power is. And Sun is saying, no, the power is remaining with, you know, your place of origin, staying true to your roots. And so we have that kind of back and forth um, going on. So I think, yeah, I think this is a sort of book that, like most Morrison books warrant all Morrison books warrants multiple reads yeah. and that there are going to be all of these little trap doors for you to find and go yeah. down and so many things to think about. Right. It's so complicated. And I mean, I love the way she uses names. I, she just is like the queen of naming people. Um, I, I, we don't have that much time left, but I do want to talk about one thing about the sex scene. Okay. This is me. This is me doing a very big literature reach. I, I know there's a lot of close readers who listen to this podcast and they get annoyed with me because I'm not a close reader. I'm like a much more of a broad reader, I think. Um, or I, not I am a, a close reader. I am a, a close, sentence person. I am a close Tracy, reader, but I'm not a close reader where it's like something comes up and I'm like, oh, let me look this up and then do like, like, I don't do that whole thing. I'm like, oh, okay. That's a reference to whatever. But during the sexy scenes, she talks about how he parts her hair and then licks the split or the part. Like her scalp. Licks her yeah. part. And yeah. I, at the end of the book, when he gets to the island and he is running lickety split, I was like, ah, that is the part. He licked her split. I don't know wow. what that means, but I felt like that was a close reading. So for all of you close reading people, congratulations. I have a PhD. Um, <laughs> okay. We have to do two. We have to do three things quickly. Okay. One okay. thing I want to talk about quickly is the crime of innocence because sure. Galarian is the person that we are told has the crime of innocence. He's guilty of being innocent, right? He's guilty of not knowing or choosing not to know what happened to his son, Michael, at the hands of his wife, Margaret, even though we know that he kind of knew something was up, but he didn't want to know. So he didn't know. However, or in addition, I think Jadine also guilty of innocence. Yes. Right? Absolutely. She doesn't want that tar stuck on her. You she know? does not want that the tar, The tar baby. of truth. Because we see her in and that blackness. jungle scene where she, they're try- she's, she's getting pulled down into the tar and the four mothers are watching yeah. her and she fights for her life to get, to get out, to not sully her white tennis outfit. Like she... 
she ain't having it. She's going to be ignorant to whatever she needs to be ignorant of to keep moving forward. And she tells Andine, don't don't tell me about like whatever hardship you're facing right now, because Mm -hmm. I won't be able to leave if you do. Mm -mm, Exactly. And also just like the visual of her being dipped in the tar, Mm -hmm. which is like black, black, black. And like the way that she uses her education to be like she she allows that for her to be ignorant or like innocent of other things because she has this education. And then when son has that great monologue, that's like, you didn't learn about me. And I'm like, right. That monologue, fire, fire. I wish people in college auditions for theater would do that as their monologue. Like that is just such a killer, killer monologue. Holy shit. Um, okay. Let's talk about the ending because we have to. What do you think happens at the end? We know. So Jade goes, Jadeen goes back. She gets her coat. She says, peace out. I love you, but I got to go fuck some whites in Paris. Bonjour. (laughs) No, she was ambivalent about whether or not she was going to fuck whites in Paris. She was ambivalent if she was going to fuck Reek 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 again, but she was not ambivalent (laughs) about going back to Paris. She didn't really like any of her choices, but she was like, but I gotta... But she knew she could carve out a new path, okay? Yes. She could part part the hair and lick the part, okay? So she's like, (laughs) bye, gotta go. Can't stay, won't stay. Then Sun waits like a week in New York. And then he's like, fuck it. I got to go back to the island. He gets back there. He runs up on Gideon and them. And he's like, yo, take me to the house. And my girl, (laughs) Therese, is like, for a murder? And he's like, no. And she's like, ah, man. And that was me. I was like, we're getting a murder. I I thought for sure we were getting a murder at the end of this book. I love a murder. Give me murder. Um, But only in fictional stories. Thank you. Uh, So I was like, we're getting a fucking murder. I cannot wait. He's like, no, I'm not going to do a murder. I just want to find out where she is. And I'm like, and I am Gideon and Gideon is I. And we're both like, she ain't worth it. Completely disinterested. He's like, this can wait till Monday. Yeah. He's like, like, maybe I don't care how good the sex is. No. (laughs) And which also I just want to parenthetically add. Son talks about how he's in love with Jade. It's all lust, right? Did you get any sense that they actually loved each other? They talked a lot, but he said he loved her when he'd only ever seen her and stared at her sleeping. Which also creepy. Hella creepy. <laughs> um, anyways, so then uh, Son is like, take me. And Therese is like, I'm blind, but I'll take you. And he's like, go off. Let's go. They go up there as they go, as they get closer and closer, it gets foggier and foggier. And he's like, she's like, okay, we're here. And he's like, no, we're not. And she's like, yeah, this is the backside of the Island. And he's like, nah, lady, take (laughs) me. He's like, why? (laughs) He's like, take me to the front side. And she's like, no, no, no. This is the side you need to be on. There's some rocks, climb them, go out. He's like, it's foggy. I can't see. And then this is the, this is how the book ends. The mist lifted and the trees stepped back a bit as if to make the way easier for a certain kind of man. Then he ran, lickety-split, lickety-split, looking neither to the left nor to the right, lickety-split, lickety-split, lickety-lickety-lickety-split. Yeah, like horses clopping. And lickety-split is a reference to the tar baby story. I guess the the brer rabbit gets out of the tar pit and he runs away, lickety-split. What do you think happened? Does, is he dead? Does he drown? Is he alive? Is he running to the blind, the race of the blind, the blind slaves that haunt the island? I think 
I think, yes, any number of things could be supported. (laughs) I'm going to put my money on. He pops up at that house and Sydney shoots him. That's that's where I'm putting it. Because Sydney said if he because, you know, on Dean tells, you know, tells him, hey, Jadine says if son shows up, don't tell her where I'm at. And Sydney upset to hear that. Son put his hands on Jadine was like, right. if he shows up here, I'm going to shoot him. Mm-hmm. Sydney's also feeling very much like the man in the house now right. that Valentine Valerian is kind of a doddering fool out in the greenhouse. Yep. So, yeah, I think it's going to be Sydney in the kitchen with the gun. Okay. It's giving clue. Sydney in the kitchen with a gun. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> I feel very uncertain However, I'm going to go, I, your answer is the answer that I would like to believe. My <laughs> answer is the answer that I think is what those close reading smart people want me to tell you about. So here right. it is. Again, I want to say that your answer is the one that I believe. But here's the other option <laughs> that I'm thinking is that he gets off in the mist. Perhaps there's no mist at all. Perhaps it's metaphorical mist. And he yes. is going blind because mm. he laid eyes on the island that makes people go blind. And therefore, he is now becoming one with Isle de Chevalier. And he is becoming a blind person. And this is a metaphor that connects him to Valerian, Margaret, mm. Sydney, and Andine, the people who live there. They are blind to the bigger picture of the world. He will become one with the black chevaliers the black knights who haunt and inhabit the island and he will be lost to us and to the world because he can no longer see which is why therese who is of the race of the blind descended of those people she can still kind of see because she doesn't live on the island she just Mm. goes back and forth also why she would be the one to To deliver him him to the island yeah to the right guide him into this world yeah yeah because she tells him this is the right place this This, is the right place she's like i can't see but i know yeah. You don't need this eyes is where to you, know. This is where you belong. This is where you belong. Exactly. Mm. That's what I'm going to say happens at yeah. the end. But if there's a murder, I would like to be on team murder <laughs> just officially. Yeah. You're getting the A plus paper. Yes. I'm getting the C for you're my getting, literal read. You're getting the review that I, you were getting the grade that I would get if I had gone first. But I'm getting but the A plus because I went Tony's to novels, I feel like always kind of end in this way. Like in Sula, you've got the parade of people marching. Into, oh, but that like, is end in a murder. To me, that was yeah. a clear. It's a. But, but the way that it's written is very like. Very yeah. similar to the way this is written in the yeah. end. And then Song of Solomon with oh, yeah. the with the yell that happens at the end. Yeah, like yeah. there's yeah. always this just kind of super lyrical, mm-hmm. semi-ambiguous ending. She's never giving novels. us the answer. She's not giving right. us the answer. Wait, I know what I wanted to talk about about Margaret really quickly. Just Ooh, in the historical it. context of Toni Morrison's novels, this one precedes Beloved. And I couldn't help mm. but think of Margaret in relationship to Setha who Mm. everybody, this is a spoiler for Beloved, so stop if you haven't read or listened to our episode, but who kills her daughter. Mm. And I just was thinking about her interest in this like violent mother and so curious if that at all was connected to the next book. Obviously, I've heard the story about how she talks about learning about the real life woman who killed her children so that they wouldn't be re-enslaved when she wrote 
beloved, but I just, it's so interesting that back to back books have this like, have this all mother. Of her, I mean, all of her books that I've yeah. read. Oh yeah, right. Of course, Sula has violent, the burning. Has a violent mother figure. Well, Sula, yeah. but then Milkman's mother right. insisting on breastfeeding, breastfeeding him, him. Right. for entirely too long. Right. Like these kind of mothers that like care through a form of violence or whatever. I don't know. But for whatever reason, the Margaret to Setha thing for me just like jumped out so aggressively. Mm. But also, I did also think of Margaret and Milkman's mom. Yeah. Anyways, that's all. Just food for thought. Okay, the last thing we were, no, we're going to well, do. Well, now I want oh. somebody to do like a close read on like mothers who love through violence and Toni Morrison novels. Right, right. Because, right? yeah, because it's, it's definitely thing. there. It's definitely it's there. Thing. I think in The Bluest Eye, too, isn't there like a, um, like the mom like beats the shit out of the kids or something? Is that, did I make that up? I think so. It's been a while since I can't I've remember. Read that I haven't read that in five years. Okay. Last thing I want to do quickly, 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 quickly sure. is, do you think this would make a good movie or TV show? And if so, who are you casting? Oh, wow. I think it could make a good, like you said, like it's already set up like a series of plays. Yeah. So I think it would lend itself well to um, a TV show, uh, a, like a limited run series. Yeah. Sun would definitely need to be the guy who starred in Moonlight. That's who I have, Trevante Rhodes. <laughs> Trevante yes. Rhodes. Yes. Oh my gosh, just such a beautiful, beautiful man. Yeah. I also consider uh, Daniel Kaluuya because he can yes. act the shit out of anything. And Daniel would kill that that very first dinner scene that Sun makes Ooh. the appearance at. Mm-hmm. Like his expressions. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would mm-hmm. like he mm-hmm. definitely has the range for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um who else? like everybody else, I'm like, I don't I don't care. Fill everyone else in, just okay. make sure that Trevante's I'll, ta- <laughs> I'll tell you what I did. I'll tell you what I did. Um I did Jeremy Irons for Valerian because he was so great at that kind of character in the Watchmen TV show. Yeah. I did either Nicole Kidman or Michelle Williams as Margaret. Mm, I think yes. Nicole Kidman might be a little too old, but she loves that fragile white thing. You know, they're just going to dye Jennifer Lawrence's hair red yeah, and cast yeah. her in it. But she, Michelle Williams, no, Jennifer Lawrence is too like tough, like uh, for me. They're going to cast her anyways because they love to cast her into a relationship where she's married to a significantly older man. That's true. That's true. <laughs> okay. I did Zendaya as Jadine. Ooh. But I think we you might need someone slightly lighter passable. I feel like Ruth Nega probably, but she's too old, you know, but like And Ruth Nega was in passing. Yes. With, yes um, famously. Uh, with Tessa Thompson. Tessa Thompson. So maybe Tessa Thompson could play JD. I, they're both too old to me. You need mm. someone younger. Oh, yeah. But I, yes, that type. But I feel like Zendaya has the like, you can't take your eyes away from me thing mm-hmm. that we hear about JD that Ruth Nega does not. I went with Jeffrey Wright as Sydney because <laughs> I thought he could hit some of the humor marks. I thought he could give us some of the look to camera like this guy is fucking lost his shit. And then I had two for Andine. I had Chandra Wilson, who famously Bailey on Grey's Anatomy, my favorite TV show. And then I also had Regina King. She is 51 years old. So she is in the age range, right? Because we know that Nicole Kid, or we know that Margaret is supposed to be almost 50. And then okay. Dean is like two or three or three or four years older than her. So I feel like though I think of Regina King as being younger, I think... I think she could be amazing. I guess when you mentioned Ondine, my mind immediately went to Viola Davis because we've already yes. seen her. Yes. 
in the help, you know? Yes. I, I, I thought of Viola Davis too. And I was like, yes, she's obvious, but I don't, I don't know if we can, if we can get all these people, someone call Hollywood, but actually <laughs> tell them to fucking end the actor's strike because we can't get any of these movies as these fucking pay assholes people what won't they're pay worth. the SAG aftra people so you can't have this idea until we have a deal for the actors who are striking in hollywood hopefully by the time this airs there will be a deal but that's like a week from now so who knows um okay that's everything i have is there anything else you want to say or add no, I just want to thank you for having me on because this is absolutely the type of book that you read and then immediately yes. need someone to talk to about it. But because it came out in the 80s, yeah. I might be hard pressed. So I'm so glad that I got to do this in a book club, book chat context. Me too. I, I was This one was a really fun one to read for me. And oh, I know there's one line when he's talking about Michael, when Valerian's talking about Michael and he said, that beautiful boy with a smile like like Sunday. I just love that. I thought that was really <sighs> beautiful too. Just so good. Okay. Toni Morrison, fucking she's undefeated. Good luck. Anybody else would love to see you do anything even half this good. Um, Minda, your book, The Heartbreak Years is out in the world. People can get it wherever they get their books. Enjoy. Everyone else, make sure you listen to the end of today's episode to find out what our November book club pick will be. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. And um, everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Minda Honey for returning to the show. I'd also like to say a quick thank you to Suzanne Williams for coordinating this episode. All right. Now it is time for our announcement of our November book club pick. It is Severance by Ling Ma. The novel is an apocalyptic satire released in 2019 all about a pandemic. Yes, we are finally doing a pandemic novel on the stacks. Be sure to listen to our November 1st episode to find out who our guest will be. And we will be discussing Ling Ma's Severance on November 29th on this very podcast. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website at thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 